Good morning, La Habra. <laughs> you know, I was looking at the calendar this morning and realizing we are almost six months into this little enterprise here. So are you having fun? <laughs> I am too. I am really thrilled about everything that's happening here. I'm, I'm extremely grateful for Dennis, for Joe, for the teams that are... Uh, working with every facet of this, and if I think about all the teams that are working with every facet, it just covers about everybody in this room. But this is uh, an exciting time uh, for us. Uh, the next six months, wonder what they're gonna look like. Uh, it will be very interesting to see what the Lord does, but it will be exciting. This passage, I think, is really helpful for us because it will help us to gain some perspective to cause us to reflect on why we're here. Uh, God is alive, God is doing some big things. We just had a big event at Biola University a couple of nights ago um, called God, Science, and the Big Questions. There were a couple thousand people and thousands of people watching it online. Adam Kazmierski is now one of the people involved in the setup of these sorts of events that happen on our campus. And the world is asking, does God exist? And that is a huge question that we should ask. But once we settle that question, whether we believe in intelligent design and recognize that there is a God who's, who made heaven and earth, the next question is, well, how do I get to know him? What next? This passage that Joe has read for you, Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Saul, gives us some amazing insight into this God that has made heaven and earth and what he wants to accomplish. And so I would invite you to, well, pull out your phone and boot it up to Acts chapter 9 or whatever you look at. Uh, I've seen an increasing number of phones that are being used for that way, and I do that too, but I'm going to go old school this morning. Um, and we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 9 in a in a deeper way and comment on a few things. And this passage, and we're going to go through verse 31, and this passage essentially has four different movements that take us through it. The first in verses 1 through 9 is Saul's encounter with Jesus who was resurrected. The second is in verses 10 through 19 that describes his conversion with Ananias coming and explaining the gospel to him and his response to that. The third is the mission that Paul goes on. He's called to mission by God and engages in that. And then finally, verses 26 to 31 is the fellowship that ensues with Paul being joined to the larger grouping of believers. But let's, uh, let's take a deeper look at some of the elements of this passage. And as we go through each movement, we'll, we'll talk about what the content of those verses are. And then I want to pause and just kind of stand back and say, so what? What does that mean for us? And a few reflections on each segment. Verse 1 begins, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul 
We will know him later in the New Testament as Paul, Saul being the Hebrew name, Paul being a Greek name, is mad. (laughs) Breathing threats and murder. And we have to pause at that juncture and say, Saul, what's the deal here? What are you so ticked about? Why are you so upset? Back off. Calm down. Let's, uh, let's talk rationally. Be a little tolerant here. But he's really upset. And the question is, what makes him so upset? Why is he so uh, incensed at these people? And the priest that he goes to for letters against these believers was Caiaphas, he's not mentioned by name in this text, but he's the same high priest who presided over the trial of Jesus that led to his crucifixion. He continues for a number of years as high priest. But Saul is upset with this new movement. Jesus has died, he's passed off the scene, and Saul, being a very law-observant, Bible-observant follower of God through the Torah, through the Jewish uh, rituals, through commitment to the temple worship, sees this new movement as blasphemy and as a threat to the ancestral faith of all Jews. And his violence is not really a surprise when we look at it in the context of the first century, because there were plenty of precedents for taking the honor of God seriously and defending God's honor with zeal. Phineas is an Old Testament example of that who defended God's honor with zeal. And in the 150 years leading up to the time of Christ, there were some luminaries at that point named uh, Mattathias and Judas Maccabeus, and we know that as the Maccabean era, who, when there were Syrian leaders that came and tried to impose their Gentile forms of worship on the Jews, these Jewish men rose up in defense of the law and in defense of God and uh, burned with zeal, the texts say, uh, in their defense of the law. And Saul sees himself in line with those who are really committed to God and his word. He burns with zeal for God's word. For the Pharisees at that time, they could look at Saul and be really impressed. He's an inspiring example of what we should do, what we should be in terms of our commitment to this one true God of Israel. So Saul seeks to extradite, really, uh, people who are Jewish who have made a commitment to Jesus Christ as Messiah but have lived uh, now 135 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem in Damascus. And he seeks to bring them back to Jerusalem, stand trial, be held to account for what they are doing. Um, this new movement for Paul was just completely bogus because the Old Testament law said explicitly that anyone who hangs on a cross is accursed by God, Deuteronomy chapter 21. Therefore, how could Jesus of Nazareth be the Messiah? The new movement says that Jesus died, the Messiah died on the cross, but 
the Jews living at that time could look at the Old Testament and say, where does it ever say that Messiah will die? Messiah is going to come and he's going to shatter the arrogance of the Gentile sinners like a potter's jar, Psalm 2. Messiah would come and be a victorious military ruler who would lead Israel out of their bondage to the uh, foreign rulers. So for Saul, this new movement had no basis. For him, it was a threat to the worship at the temple. And that was a key figure, factor in this because they were a th- advocating a worship that didn't require a temple, it didn't require sacrifices. They claimed to honor the one true God, but they were denying the ritual held at the temple and saying there was something better. So for him, this was a logical response to the threat imposed by this new movement, and he goes forward in this way. But he gets stopped in his tracks, as we see, as we get to verse 3. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, and he saw nothing, so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. It may seem kind of harsh that he lost his vision, but in some ways it is a symbolic reminder that those who do not know God the one true and living God, live in darkness. It was a reminder that the God of this age, and Saul is the one who says this later on, that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Saul, now in a period of reflection, trying to figure out what has happened and what is going on, Now, we got to pause there and think of a couple of different things as we reflect on what has just happened. Jesus has revealed himself out of his glory in heaven. The light isn't the sun. It was the radiant glory of the resurrected Christ who sits at the Father's right hand. The glory of God is inexpressible light, and Jesus shares in that divine glory. And Paul Saul now sees that divine glory, and he knows that something is up. And Jesus specifically speaks to him and reveals himself to him in a really interesting way. Why are you persecuting me, Saul? Well, obviously Saul isn't persecuting him. He's resurrected. He's ascended on high. But this comment draws very careful connections between the resurrected Jesus who sits in glory at the Father's right hand and his people. And this was something that Paul had to ponder because it's a relevant truth for us today. Jesus is resurrected. He's not detached from his church, but he's in a vital 
connection with his church even today. So that we are persecuted, it's a persecution of Jesus. He's the head of the body, which is his church. And so there's this connection and vital union that we have with the resurrected Lord that makes us inseparable from him and is really powerful. You know, one of the favorite verses that I have in the Bible is Ephesians 2.13. And it says, For in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've just celebrated the blood of Christ. And part of the reason for that celebration is the fact that it represents the nearness we can have with God right now. That we can have a close relationship, a personal relationship with God right now. So much so that if Jesus were to walk into this room and you were hurting, it hurts him. There's such a bond of connection. At this juncture, in Acts chapter 9, the word Christian has never been used to describe the followers of Jesus. And what became Paul's favorite expression for what it means to be a follower of Christ is the expression, in Christ. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you are so united to him that it can be said, you are in Christ. Sometimes I wish the Lord would just draw the curtains back and help us see in the spiritual realm, in the supernatural realm, this dynamic of intense closeness that we have with him. Because it's easy for us, I think, to look at coming to Christ as simply us making a decision to follow Jesus. But the gospel is so much more than that. It's entering into a relationship that is real. It is very real. And it is very dynamic. It is very powerful. And this is what the encounter was that Saul had with the resurrected Christ. One more thing that we need to say about this first section of verses 1 through 9. When I came to Christ, it wasn't anything like that. I didn't get a flash of light. I didn't get uh, a visitation like this. And I'm not going to embarrass you and have you raise your hand. How many of you have, have had a flash of light and were blinded for three days? And it just seems so unusual and so out of the ordinary for this kind of thing to happen. And indeed it is. It is unusual. It is out of the ordinary. But I need to pause at this juncture and say it may seem out of the ordinary to us in our context here in Southern California at this point in time. But in other segments of the world right now, God is moving in some amazingly miraculous ways. China, for instance. I've talked with many people who've come to Christ in China, and it's been a tough environment to be in. And from our School of Intercultural Studies and our missions department, what we're realizing is that probably the majority of people in the last 20 years who have become Christians in China have become Christians as a result of a dream or a vision that has prompted them to seek 
and ultimately to find the Lord Jesus Christ. There's similar phenomena happening right now in the Middle East, in the Muslim world, with dreams and visions and God revealing himself in amazing ways that prompts people to go and, and seek God in a new way. I have a hunch that some of this is happening in places where life is a lot more difficult than it is here, where the gospel hasn't been as readily accessible as it is here. We can have a chance to hear the gospel at any time. There are places where it's really hard, uh, really difficult to hear that, and there's a lot of persecution. And there seems to be somewhat of a correlation in that way. But even here, from time to time, we see God moving in some amazing ways. Um, I, I'm the dean of a seminary. We just hired a man to work in our... Um, we have an extension in New York City that focuses on outreach to Jewish people. And there's a man that we just hired named Rich Flashman who was raised in Massachusetts in a Jewish, Reformed Jewish and Orthodox Jewish uh, home and never exposed to the gospel, went to the university, was a political science major, actually was an intern for Senator Ted Kennedy, and was going through his university career, and he got a knock on the door one day in his dorm room. And there was someone uh, that came and just kind of out of the blue said, uh, I just wanted to stop by and tell you about, uh, explore with you whether you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, and Rich looked at the guy and he says, well, cool that you're doing that, but I'm Jewish. And the response the other guy gave was kind of interesting. He said, well, so is he. <laughs> and Rich said, no, 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 I'm just, I'm just not interested. But the man challenged uh, Rich to read, well, read what the Old Testament prophets actually say about the Messiah and make up your mind. And over the next couple of years, that was in Rich's mind. He did read some of the Old Testament prophets, and he was beginning to really wonder and be curious about that. And then there was one experience where he was out working a route for the job that he had, and Jesus appeared to him in this vision. The only time it had ever happened to him, and it hasn't happened since, Jesus appeared to him in a vision. And it was the catalyst that helped him to realize he is alive, he is real, and he cares for me. And he became a Christian, later went to seminary. He's been a pastor um, in Connecticut and was actually one of the pastors involved when the Newtown massacre in the school happened at Sandy Hook. Um, so God does do this from time to time. But for us, I think for most of us, that hasn't been our experience. Nevertheless, sometimes I wonder if God were to show us the unusual, the miraculous things that he did to bring us to where we are, that we might be surprised. I can look into my own life, because I became a Christian as a teenager, didn't grow up in a Christian home, and I think back over the string of events that led me to a place, place where I was exposed to the gospel. 
And I, I wonder now, boy, isn't it a coincidence that my dad started working for this Christian farmer up in the San Joaquin Valley? Isn't it just an amazing coincidence that there was this network of Christians in that community that began reaching out to us and showing us love and so on? For those of us who have been Christians, think back about the coincidences, the marvelous, amazing circumstances that were part of our experience. And I just wonder if the hand of God and the fingerprint of God might have been involved in some of that. And I was thinking about some that are even here today, maybe you don't know Christ. You need to ask yourself, there may be a reason you're here. There may be a reason that God has put certain people in your life. There may be a reason that certain things are happening in your life right now, even tragedy. Paul's blindness led him to reflect on this whole thing and to acknowledge and respond to the work of God. Thank God for his mercy and his grace. The second part of this passage is in uh, verses uh, 10 through 19. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man at Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Interesting here, uh, poor Ananias uh, just has to be a bit worried, has to be a bit fearful over what is happening. And he had seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales from fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. As we think about this episode and its relevance for us, here's Ananias. He is a Jewish follower of Jesus. He has seen and heard about this guy, Saul. He's very fearful, but God wants to use him. And I would just say that one of the lessons I think that comes out of this is that we enter this new movement called Christianity. We've become followers of Jesus, and it's not time to sit back and, and wait. It's time to engage in part of the mission that he has for us. And our response to that, that God has for us, is to be prepared because we never know where it might lead, and it might lead to some uncomfortable situations and some that might even be downright dangerous. And so be prepared for whatever it is that God may call you to. At the end of this section, too, we see Saul's response. 
He's had three days of reflection. He's thought about this, and he knew an awful lot. He knew enough about this new movement to persecute it. And now the revelation of Jesus to him helps him realize that vision that Stephen saw, it was true. Heaven was open, and Jesus is at the right hand of God. The scriptures are true when they speak of one representative of the nation dying for all. So Isaiah 53 applies then to Jesus himself. And on and on. And so what happens with Saul is he reflects on all of this and at some point he reaches a time when he believes. He believes that Jesus is the Christ the Messiah, the Son of God, and he internally, in the deepest parts of his soul, responds to that. And the Holy Spirit comes upon him in response to that faith, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, it says, at that point. Then he rose and he was baptized. And this describes a a very common pattern and the pattern that's left for us. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 talks about that. You hear the gospel, the word of faith, you believe it, and then you are sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And that pattern we see the rest of the way throughout the book of Acts, we see it through the early church, and that's the pattern that we perpetuate today that the proclamation of the gospel is followed by belief, and then the Spirit comes in response to that belief. The blessing of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit of God, who actually lives and indwells us in our lives. And that's what happened with Paul. We'll see a couple of exceptions to that. Uh, We've seen one with the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. We'll see another one in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius and the episode there, where this movement of the gospel from the Jewish people to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles becomes an object lesson that these people are really in. But the by and large pattern is belief, the Holy Spirit comes, we're baptized then as part of that message and mission. And then finally here in the third section, Verses 19 to 25. So some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he's the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name and he has not come here for this purpose Or has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Saul immediately went on mission and began proclaiming that which he formerly opposed. For him, there was not a lot of time in between where he sat and reflected, went off to school for four years, came back, tried to decide what to do. It was immediate. But we have to remember, this guy knew a lot already. 
He knew the Bible inside out. He knew the Hebrew Old Testament. For him, it was a matter of reflecting on the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And after he enters that relationship with Christ, he can't help himself. He wants to proclaim this as good news, that Jesus has made satisfaction for sin, he has forgiven our sins, and that that message needs to be yelled from the rooftops. And he immediately begins, begins doing that in the synagogues at Damascus. I can't imagine what they were thinking. He's going up there to pull these people off and persecute them, and now he's coming in telling them, you need to receive Jesus. It was an amazing and dramatic reversal in his life that he engages in. And so... The final portion then, verse 26 through 31, or 23 and following, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, still in Damascus. What you don't see here is something that we discover by reading Galatians chapter 1. Luke just quickly jumps to the chase and says, after many days. Well, after about three years, to be honest, because what we find in Galatians 1 is that immediately, or a short time after Paul's conversion experience, it says in Galatians 1, he goes to Arabia, and he spends the better part of three years there, then returns to Damascus in this way. Now, Arabia at that time wasn't down there in the Saudi Peninsula that we know as Saudi Arabia. It was the area just east of the Jordan River that we know as Nabatea today. And what he did was to go into that region and begin immediately proclaiming the gospel to Gentiles living in that area and then returns back to Damascus. And we also find this whole episode that we have um, in verses... um, 23 and following, where they have to uh, rescue him by night, we find and learn more about that in Paul's letters. So Paul immediately begins proclaiming the gospel as part of his missionary outreach in this way. And we come back to that for ourselves. Here we are, La Habra, six months into it, And you've heard Dennis talk a lot about we are on mission as well. We're on mission here on Sunday mornings. We're not coming together just to be a a great, have a great time and go home. But we're part of this mission that began right here. Uh, We've got a message to take to to people. It's a message of great news. And we want to commit ourselves fully to that mission and realize that Um, there may be uncomfortable bits to it, there may be miraculous bits to it, but we want to join in on what God is trying to accomplish before the return of our Lord Jesus. And this is what he has called us to do, not to just bide our time until Jesus returns. The final verse in this whole section is one that I want to conclude with because it talks about peace coming on the church in Jerusalem. And then it speaks of 
verse 31, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. When we become Christians, God enters our lives in a new and dynamic and special way through the presence of his Holy Spirit. When Jesus went to the cross, he gave one message that was very memorable in John's gospel. And he says, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I don't leave you as orphans in the world. One of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to provide comfort, encouragement, and peace. Peace because we now have the knowledge that all of our sins have been forgiven, that all of the things that characterize our former life have been washed away, and that we can stand in a close relationship with God as a result of that. But peace also, just coming from that presence of the Holy Spirit, life can be so disruptive and going all different kinds of directions. And in the midst of that, each of us individually and as a community can be an island of peace, deep in our souls, deep in our hearts, because of the spirit that was given to us. So I'd just like to conclude with a word of prayer, and then I'll ask Joe to come on up. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for the amazing and miraculous way that you reached the Apostle Paul. Thank you for entering his life. But most of all, Lord, we thank you for continuing that work, for reaching us, entering our lives, making a difference, forgiving us of ways of living that were counter to you and brought us shame and guilt. We thank you so much, Lord. I pray that you will help us, as you've called us now, to join you on the mission and give us your grace to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.